Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. He is the editor at HumbleDollar.com, and he's come out with a new book called From Here to Financial Happiness, Enrich Your Life in Just 77 Days. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Jonathan. Jordan, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. So for people who are not familiar, just kind of give a brief summary of your career and uh, what led up to writing this book. So as I like to tell people, I spent the last 33 years writing and thinking about money. And for most of that time, uh, almost 20 years, I was at the Wall Street Journal where I was the personal finance columnist. Um, Part of the other time, I was at Forbes magazine. I worked at Citigroup for six years as their director of financial education. And in recent years, I've been running this website, HumbleDollar.com, and also putting out books, the latest of which, as you said, is From Here to Financial Happiness. So what it means, Jordan, is I've actually been kicking around this business almost as long as you. That's right, (laughs) indeed. Tell people what they can find at HumbleDollar.com and what kind of things do you send out regularly on that? So Hubble Dollar is a site that the backbone of which is my uh, money guide. It's an extensive money guide that covers every financial topic conceivable. But in addition, I've got new blogs up there six or seven days a week written by me and also by people who help me with the site. And as I like to tell people, it's really a website for financial grownups. This is your second website you go to after you've tried all those foolish things, chasing hot funds, buying hot stocks, and you're ready to settle down and have a sensible financial life. So we talk about things like diversification, indexing, what sort of estate planning documents you ought to have, and so on. And in telling these stories, what I encourage my bloggers to do is to write from personal experience. So when they talk about how they organized their own estate or how they built their own portfolio, they're talking about things that they experienced. And my hope is that when people read those stories, that they will really be able to relate to them and get some ideas for how to improve their own finances. So what was the idea particularly behind the Here to Financial Happiness in 77 Days? And why did you pick 77 Days? So the question really is, why in the world does the world need another financial book? I mean, there are so many great books out there on personal finance, but I would argue that all of them have one great failing, which is as good as the financial information is, the real problem, to, in my mind, is actually getting people to act. You know, we all know that we should eat less. We all know that we shouldn't smoke or drink to excess. We all know we should exercise, and yet we don't do these things, right? We, we all eat too much. We drink too much. We don't go to the gym. Similarly, when it comes to our personal finances, we know we ought to spend less and save more. We know we ought to diversify, get our state plan organized, buy the right insurance, and yet we can't bring ourselves to do it. With From Here to Financial Happiness, what I'm hoping to do is not only to educate people, but also to spur them to action. And that's really what's unique about this new book. So you take it one day at a time, basically. And uh, assuming people do everything in your book, are you guaranteeing financial happiness? I'm not guaranteeing financial happiness. I've been (laughs) kicking around this business long enough not to guarantee anything, Jordan. But I do believe that in 77 days, people can develop a plan that sets them on the right financial path. You know, you will, you know, to to accumulate true wealth, 
What you need are decades and decades of investment compounding. You cannot get rich in 77 days. What you can do is figure out the necessary steps to put yourself in the right financial direction. And I believe that if people work their way through the 77 days, they will indeed set themselves on the right financial course. So we're going to briefly kind of go through a, a sampling of the 77 days and just augment a little bit about what you talk about. On the very first day, you talk about start here, go anywhere. What do you mean by that? In terms of figuring out what you want to do with your financial life, you know, you first need to sort of step back and think really hard about where you stand, what you want, and how you're going to get there. And that's the setup on day one. What we're going to do is we're going to figure out where you stand, what you want, and how you're going to get there. And that's the program for the next 76 days that follow. So, for instance, on day two, I ask people to daydream a little, to think about what they would do if money were no object. You know, would they give up their job? Would they move to another part of the country? Would they change careers? What is it that you would do if money were no object? I'm not promising people they can achieve all of their financial goals, but unless you know what your goals are, you're never going to reach them. So the first thing is to figure out what is it that you really want from your financial life. And what are some of the goals that are realistic for people? I mean, as you say, they can dream about all kinds of things, but most people never achieve all of their goals. How can you separate what's realistic from what's never going to happen? Well, most people need to do certain things. They, as I talk about later in the book, you know, there are certain things that, where we have to put our future self first. And when we think about our future self, you know, the number one goal for our future self is to one day be able to retire. It may be our, the last of our financial goals, and yet we should always put it first. And the reason is it takes decades and decades of diligent saving and investing in order to amass enough for retirement. And on top of that, it's the one financial goal that isn't optional. I've met many people who have said, oh, I just plan to work forever. That is not realistic. Someday, either your boss or your aging body is going to say to you, you are not going to work today. You are simply not fit to work anymore. And at that point, you will need to live off Social Security, any pension you have, and the savings you have managed to amass. And to have enough savings in order to retire in comfort, you do indeed need to be diligent about your finances for decades and decades. So that's why I say to people, you know, the top goal and the you need to address is retirement. And for most people, I believe that is a realistic goal. If you save regularly for 30 years, you should have a good shot of retiring in comfort. Yet the reality is a lot of people, baby boomers particularly, are getting to retirement these days without having saved hardly anything on their own. Social Security is a lot less than they thought, and they probably don't have a pension. They may have a 401k. So how is it that people have been for decades going on and not doing what they need to be able to get ready for retirement? Well, again, it comes back to this issue, Jordan, of the difference between knowing what to do and getting yourself to do it. So we all know we need to save for the future, and yet... We find ourselves at the shopping mall of the weekend buying those shiny objects and spending the money we were planning to save. So one of the things that I try to get people to do with this new book is to really visualize what their financial goals are, including what they believe retirement is going to look like. Because if you're going to sacrifice today in order to 
achieve tomorrow's dreams, you need to make tomorrow's dreams as enticing as possible. They've got to be so exciting that you're willing to make the short-term sacrifices to get there. So on one of the days in the book, I get people to try and sit down and visualize what they would do with the typical retirement day. What is it that's going to make their retirement really fulfilling, that's going to give them a sense of purpose, that's going to get them out of bed in the morning? And if you can figure out what would make for an exciting retirement, a super fulfilling retirement, you will be much more willing to make the short-term sacrifices necessary to get there. This is very much going against the kind of instant gratification society that wants everything now and doesn't want to wait 30 years for things, or not being able or willing to plan. I mean, one of your statements here is, life shouldn't be an impulse purchase. You may fall short on financial plans, but that's better than not having any plan at all. And a lot of people don't have a plan. They might say they do, but they don't actually have a plan. Yeah, so when you say, you know, people make these impulse purchases, I mean, it's a, really a key phrase because when we think about impulses, what we're thinking about is that, you know, things that we do because of our hardwired instincts, things that we make snap decisions and say, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, you know, I want to buy that. And somehow or other, we need to overcome those hardwired instincts. And that's where this notion of behavior change, of developing new financial habits becomes so important. And I'm not pretending that it's easy. It's really hard to develop new financial habits, develop better financial habits. But the research suggests that if we can set ourselves on the right path and we can do the right thing for something like two to three months every day, whether it's saving or it's going to the gym or it's eating more healthily or it's not smoking – that those desired habits are become set in stone and we will indeed stick with them. The problem is getting through that short-term period that, until we have taken the behavior that we want and turned it into the habits that we need. Yeah. One of the habits you talk about is embracing humility. Uh, what do you mean by that as re- regards to the markets or people think they're, they're too overconfident? What do you mean by embracing humility? Uh, the answer to that, Jordan, is all of the above. Uh, it also goes to the reason why I call my website HumbleDollar.com. You know, we imagine that we know so much more about ourselves and about the financial world than we really do. And I think one of the big mistakes, one of the big failings is that we assume that we instinctively know what we want to do with our lives and with our money. And yet we know the truth. The truth can be found in your basement. If you go down to your basement, what you will discover is a museum dedicated to the purchases that you thought were going to make you endlessly happy, and yet within a few short weeks, you've given up on, and they're sitting there in your basement gathering dust. In order to figure out what we want from our financial lives, we need to be humble enough to step back, ignore our instincts, and think really hard about what we want. And if we do that, I think we'll get a lot more happiness out of the dollars that we spend and out of the goals that we pursue. It's, you know, it is just, it's a sad commentary on our instincts that so many of us end up spending money on things we don't want, end up in jobs that we don't like, end up in marriages that make us unhappy. All of these choices we make instinctively turn out oftentimes not to be the right choices. And also in investing, uh, kind of following hot stocks or trends, thinking we've got something and then it doesn't turn out to be what, what people thought it was. 
And that's the overconfidence that you cited. And yeah, you know, we in general tend to be overconfident and there are a whole bunch of mental tricks that cause us in, to have that overconfidence. That overconfidence leads us to trade too much, to buy those actively managed funds, to purchase those hot stocks. And more often than not, instead of beating the market, we end up lagging far behind. And what we should really do is have the humility to buy market tracking index funds, diversify broadly, and let the markets do the job. Indeed. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. He's the author of a new book called From Here to Financial Happiness, Enrich Your Life in Just 77 Days. You can also see more about Jonathan at his website, HumbleDollar.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've all been there, struggling to keep up with credit card payments, searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt. Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt. And it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune into Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. His website is humbledollar.com, and his new book is called From Here to Financial Happiness, Enrich Your Life in Just 77 Days. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. It's great to be on, Jordan. So we have a, we're at day six now, and you're talking about piling it on. What do you mean by that? 
One of the most important concepts when it comes to managing money is compounding. And compounding can either be your friend or it can be your enemy. Uh, we all, you know, think about compounding when it comes to managing money, you know, investing our dollars. You know, if you earn 10% this year and you earn 10% next year, your cumulative gain isn't 20%, but 21 because in year two, you earn investment gains not only on your original investment, but also on the gains you earned in the first year. Compounding can be incredibly powerful, especially for young investors. Even if you can only save 50 or $100 a month, if you put that in the financial markets and it compounds over time, you'll have a great shot at retiring as a very wealthy man or woman. But, but compounding could also be your enemy. And the biggest way it can be your enemy is when it comes to credit card debt. If you take your credit cards and you rack up a significant balance and then you don't try to pay it down, the 20% interest that you're incurring every year can amount to an enormous sum. In fact, for a, for a blog earlier this year, Jordan, I ran the math. If you accumulated $5,000 of credit card debt in college and that credit card, char- that credit card charged you 20% a year and you never made any payments on that card, you just let the balance accumulate, which the credit card company to, you know, wouldn't actually allow you to do. But if you did, 20% a year, after 40 years, the balance on that card would be $7.3 million. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> so people, you're saying people really underestimate the positive or negative co- uh, power of compounding. And it's not just my opinion. There have actually been academic studies that have looked at how people gauge the benefit of investing and the damage done by paying interest. And people underestimate at both ends. They underestimate the benefits of compounding and they underestimate the cost of loans. Indeed. So the next thing you talk about is everything is a trade-off. And by this, you mean opportunity cost. How can people judge appropriately what the opportunity cost is when they should make a decision to do one financial move rather than another? Well, the problem is people don't even think about it, Jordan. we were talking earlier about making impulse purchases. When you make an impulse purchase, what you're really doing is saying, I want it now, and you lose all thought about alternative purchases you might make with those dollars, and you forget all about future goals that you might fund with those dollars. One of the tricks that I advise people to use is to simply walk out of the store for 10 minutes. If you can walk out of the store for 10 minutes before you go up to the the cash register to buy that particular item that's caught your eye, in that 10 minutes, you'll have a cooling off period when you can think about, oh, well, you know, the $100 I'm about to spend now, maybe I could spend that on something else that would bring me greater happiness or better still, maybe I could take that $100 and I could put it in my favorite mutual fund And instead of having $100 to spend now, I might have $400 to spend in retirement. Those are the sort of choices we make when we consider opportunity costs. The problem with impulse purchases is we never even think about the trade-off. And you talk about this being hyperbolic discounting. What do you mean by that? One of the things that the academic studies have discovered is that in order to get us to delay gratification for even a few weeks, the rate of return that we're earning has to be absolutely enormous. So for instance, instead of having $100 now, 
to spend $100 now, you might have to offer somebody the chance to spend $200 in two weeks. That's hyperbolic discounting. In order to get people to delay gratification, we have to offer them an enormous rate of return. And I think a lot of this, Jordan, goes back to the instincts we inherited from our hunter-gatherer ancestors. You know, you have to remember, our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't have to worry about saving for retirement that was 40 years in the future. They had no notion they were ever going to live that long. For them, life was nasty, brutish, and short. There was no virtue in delaying gratification. Today, when there's a 90% chance that a 20-year-old is going to reach retirement, a 90% chance, there is enormous value in delaying gratification. And yet, it's so hard to get people to do it. Yeah. You then ask people to kind of measure their level of happiness. What kind of surveys have people shown how they changed over time as to how happy people are? When it comes to happiness in the, U- in the U.S., the biggest survey and the longest running is something called the General Social Survey. And it's been conducted every year or two since 1972. In 1972, when the first survey was conducted, 30% of Americans described themselves as very happy. In 2016, when the latest survey was conducted, 30% of Americans described themselves as very happy. Over the intervening 44 years, U.S. inflation-adjusted per capita income more than doubled. In other words, we are living twice as well as we were 40 years ago, and yet our reported level of happiness has not budged. Money has not bought happiness. I believe it can, but for most people, it clearly has not. And the reason I believe is because people spend their money in the wrong way. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so then you talk about running the treadmill, uh, and and you talk about uh, hedonic adaptation. What do you mean by that? Well, this is the reason that happiness does not rise over time. You know, we imagine that, you know, if we're going to get that next promotion or the next pay raise, we buy the bigger house or the flashier car, that we're going to be so much happier. And often we achieve these goals. We get the pay raise. We buy the flashier car. And at the moment that happens, we are indeed thrilled. Fast forward a week, two weeks, three weeks, and we've forgotten all about the pay raise and the flashy car that was going to make us permanently happier, we're back to feeling dissatisfied and we're hankering off to something else. This is the hedonic treadmill. We're running fast towards some glittering prize, and yet we're making no real progress towards improving our happiness. So somehow, if we're going to get greater happiness out of the dollars that we have, we need to find some way to get off the hedonic treadmill. And what is that? How do you recommend doing that? I mean, you don't buy these fancy things or you don't have those thoughts. I mean, how do you get off the hedonic treadmill? I believe that if you want greater happiness out of your dollars, there are three things that you need to do. First of all, you need to use money in such a way that you you no longer worry so much about money. I mean, money is a huge cause of of unhappiness for so many people they uh, you know they worry about you know paying the bills they worry about how they're going to pay for retirement they fight about money with their spouse so you need to get to the point where money is not something that you regularly worry about and doing so may be relatively simple you may be able to dramatically reduce your money worries simply by getting that credit card debt paid off 
keeping a few thousand dollars in the bank so you're not concerned about paying the next round of bills and having a little bit of money in a savings account in case you have some sort of financial emergency. You know, you've seen that Federal Reserve statistic that's absolutely astonishing that almost half of Americans could not cover a $400 financial emergency without either borrowing money or selling something that they own. Yes. You want it not be one of those people if you want happiness from your dollars. So that's one way to improve your happiness. And then the two other ways, and I'll just mention them briefly so I don't blather on t too long here, Jordan, is the second way is to use your dollars to have special times with friends and family. All the research shows us that spending time with friends and family gives an enormous boost to happiness. And the third way is to find ways to do work that you find meaningful and that you think is really important. When you get to retirement, you can spend all day doing meaningful work. But even when you're in the workforce, you should look for ways to spend your days doing work that you think is important, you find challenging, that you're passionate about, that you think is interesting. If you can use your money to create that sort of opportunity, whether it's by taking college courses in the evening, by having hobbies you do at the weekend, whatever it is, that will improve your happiness. Yet your next uh, assignment is to list your financial concerns or worries. What is the purpose of doing that? Well, obviously, if you're going to get greater happiness out of your dollars, you need to figure out what's dragging down your happiness and simply sitting down and trying to figure out what it is that you worry about when it comes to money can be the crucial first step in getting greater happiness out of your dollars. And it may be the things that we've already mentioned. How would I cope with a financial emergency or if I lost my job? You know, how am I going to make sure that I can always pay the bills you know, every month? How can I get that credit card debt paid off? Doing those few simple things can enormously boost the happiness that we have. You also said it's important to look back both positively and negatively, smart financial moves you made and things you thought were your biggest mistakes. What, what can people learn from that by looking back? Well, first of all, you, know, you can start to realize, are there any financial errors that you consistently make that you want to avoid uh, making in the future? But also, you know, when you look at your finances and think, well, what is it, the smart things that I've done over the years, uh, maybe it was contributing to the 401k plan, you know, maybe it was buying a house. Once you start to see what's been positive about your financial life, maybe you'll, maybe, but not necessarily, but maybe that's a sign that those are the things that you should be doing more of. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you also talk about uh, products you've used that could be either promising or perilous. What do you mean by that? One of the prevailing misconceptions out there is that the more complicated a financial product is, you know, the more likely it is to make you money. As you and I both know, Jordan, complicated financial products are usually an excuse for Wall Street to charge fat fees, and the people who end up paying those fat fees are the investors in that product. You know, as alluring as they might sound, hedge funds are a bad investment for most people who are in those products. Most hedge funds are not a good investment. But even for regular retail investors who can't afford the cost of getting into a hedge fund, there are all kinds of other complicated strategies that can end up derailing their finances. Things like variable annuities and cash value life insurance and equity indexed annuities. These are not good things for people to own. 
Complication usually means worse. Simple is better, you're saying. Absolutely. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. His website is humbledollar.com. And his new book we're talking about is called From Here to Financial Happiness, Enrich Your Life in Just 77 Days. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Looking for an investment option? Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategies screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102. Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. He was formerly the Wall Street, uh, the columnist for personal finance at The Wall Street Journal. His website is humbledollar.com, and his new book is called from here to financial happiness, enrich your life in just 77 days. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. So you have a section called Sleeping Better. How does one sleep better when you think about your finances? So we often have uh, conversations about an emergency fund. You know, everybody should have an emergency fund. But really, when we talk about emergency fund, what's the big financial emergency? Sure, you know, it's it's a bit of a bummer when you know the refrigerator conks out, or we have to you know fix the air conditioning, or we need to buy a new car. But the the really big financial emergency is losing your job. So you need to figure out 
how you're going to cope if you lose your job. And the first step, I believe, is to figure out what your fixed monthly costs are. How much do you need to have to keep the lights on every month? You know, we're talking things like the mortgage or rent, the utility bills, groceries, insurance premiums. What is that minimum sum you need to get through? And then you have to say to yourself, okay, so let's say I need $4,000 a month in order to keep the lights on. If I'm out of work, where am I going to find that $4,000 a month? You know, and you might have it in a savings account. You might have a home equity line of credit you could draw on. Maybe you've contributed in the past to a Roth IRA and you plan to pull out your original contributions, which you can do without paying taxes and penalties. What you need to do is figure out what that number is and how you're going to cover it. And if you do that, and you know you're going to be okay, even if we get the recession that everybody's going to, everybody's been talking about, you end up out of work. If you know you're going to be okay, you will indeed sleep better at night. Indeed. You talk about hunting but not gathering and making the best of our hardwired instincts. We, we talked about going back to the caveman. How can you make the best of your hardwired instincts? I think the first thing to do is to realize what it is about our hardwired instincts that lead us astray. So there are some things that uh, we do because of our hardwired instincts that can be very helpful, and so, but at the same time, in a different circumstance, they can be hugely damaging. So for instance, one of the, our hardwired instincts is to imitate other people. You know, for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, this is how they learned you know, where it's best to hunt, where they can find fish, how to build shelter, and so on. Today, imitating others is the reason that we go to movies that are popular, that we go to restaurants that are popular, that we favor the latest electronic gadget that's getting rave reviews online. The problem with imitating others when it comes to investing is that it leads us to buy investments that have already been bid up in price and maybe set for a decline. I mean, we saw this most classically, you know, a year ago with Bitcoin. Bitcoin became enormously popular. The people who weren't sensible financially were drawn to that crowd. It's like, everybody's buying Bitcoin. It must be a good thing. I'm going to buy Bitcoin. You know, and here we are a year later, and Bitcoin is what? Like a quarter of the price it was a year ago? That, Maybe even less than that, yes. <laughs> that is the danger of buying things that are popular in the financial market. So popularity, good instinct to other areas of financial life, not good when it comes to investing. You also talk about other things that can make you happy as far as uh, events or activities. How does that help to kind of list what activities make give you happiness? So one of the things that we know is we're not very good at figuring out what will make us happy. So, in order to improve our happiness, the first thing we should do is make a list of the things that we really enjoy. And you can think about this in a variety of different buckets, but let's just take the typical week. Sit down and think about the typical week and say, which are the parts of the week that I really enjoy and which are the parts that I could really do without? And then what you want to do is try to use your finances in order to do more of the stuff that you really enjoy and less the stuff that you hate. And a, a simple example, if you really don't like cleaning your own house and you can afford it, hire somebody to clean your house. You know, that is an excellent use of your money. If 
when you think about the typical week, you say, well, actually, you know, when I'm at the office, there's this particular part of my job that I really like, and there's this part that I really dislike. You might talk to your boss and say, is there any way I can do more of this thing that I like and a little bit less of this thing that I don't like? Because it may be that somebody else in the office actually has the opposite reaction to those two tasks, and maybe you can end up spending your days in the office doing stuff that you enjoy more. So thinking about the typical week, about what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy can be the first step in improving your financial life and improving the happiness that you get from your dollars. Then you have a section on insurance, what you call everyone in the pool, about pooling risks. What do people not understand about insurance and, and in many cases leads them not to have enough and then they're at financial peril? So when you buy insurance, you are, as, as you suggested, Jordan, pooling risk with other people. What you're doing is you're taking your premium dollars and you're throwing them into this pool of money that is overseen by an insurance company. When you buy insurance, in most cases, what you want to do is buy as little insurance as you can safely get away with without putting your family in the way of financial harm. And then you should desperately, desperately hope that you never have an insurance claim. Because if you have an insurance claim, what it means is something bad has happened in your financial life. So ideally, as I said, what you want is the minimum amount of insurance that you can get away with and then dearly hope that you never have to claim because that's the sign that life is good. Do most people have enough insurance or most people are underinsured? It's all over the map, Jordan. But as a rule, people tend to have too little of certain types of insurance. And I think the insurance industry is partly to blame for this. So, for instance, when you talk to people about the life insurance that they have, a lot of people end up with cash value life insurance. And the reason they've ended up with cash value life insurance is because they were sold it by an insurance agent because the insurance agent gets an enormous commission for selling cash value life insurance. So they end up with the life insurance, but the problem is it's not a big enough policy. So if they go under the next bus, their family is not gonna be okay financially. So instead of buying that, cash value life insurance policy with this really big premium, what they should be buying is term insurance that has a much smaller premium for every $100,000 of death benefit. And then they can buy more of that insurance and ensure that their family really is properly covered should they go under that bus. Yeah, this is the buy term and invest the difference idea, basically. And it's a great idea. <laughs> You're talking about cars a little bit, talking about driving yourself crazy. You think people spend too much on, on some combination of cars and housing. What can they do about that? They don't think there's usually much choice. Yeah, and if you look at the national expenditure figures for the U.S., the typical American devotes half of their annual income to their home and their car. The home accounts for about a third of their spending, and the car accounts for something like 17% of spending. And the way to cut that cost is really easy. You, know, you don't want to be leasing vehicles every three years. You don't want to be buying new vehicles every three years. If you really want to get the cost of car ownership under control, what you want to do is buy one of those cars that's coming off lease after three years, buy it, and then keep it for as long as possible. 
If you do that, your car costs are going to be substantially less than it is for the typical American family. Now, I realize that there are certain people who love cars. They love driving a new car, and they want to replace their car every three years. And if that's really what you care about, knock yourself out. Go ahead. If that's what you figure is a wise way to spend your money, then I don't want to stand in your way. But if you're just buying new cars because you've been told it's the right thing to do, if you've been leasing cars because you're told it's the right thing to do, think again. It is not the most financially prudent thing to do, which means you should only be doing it if it's bringing you a lot of happiness. You talk about credit scores as well. Uh, what can a lot of people do to improve their credit scores if their score is not as, low, not as high as they, they think it should be? So when people think about credit scores, what a credit score really reflects, and this is sort of a sad reflection on our society, what a credit score really reflects is how responsible we are in paying off debt. <laughs> you know, certain other parts of your financial life are now assessed in credit scores, but principally it's about how you manage your debt. So want a good credit score? Make sure you pay those loans on time. If you want a credit, good credit score, what you should do is actually charge a little bit to your credit card every month, but then make sure that you pay it off in full when you get the bill. And ideally, when you charge that money to the credit card, you don't want to be using more than 10% of the credit limit on that card. So if you have a card with a $10,000 credit limit, you shouldn't be charging more than $1,000 every month to that credit card. And if you do that, you'll help to improve your credit score. The score will go down if you use a lot of the capacity, the debt capacity of a particular card is what you're saying. Yeah, so you want to be using the card at least a little bit so that the credit card company sends a report every month to the credit bureau saying, yep, you know, this guy is still alive and he's still responsibly using credit. But when you use the credit card, you don't want to be using too much of the credit limit. So as I said, if it's, you've got a $10,000 credit limit, you don't want to be charging more than $1,000 every month. You also said it's important to automate things. What, what are some things that people can automate that they're probably not doing now? So people often automate their investing, and that's a great idea. You automate your investing when you sign up for 401k contributions at your employer, when they pull the money out of your paycheck every month and put it directly into the mutual funds you choose. But on top of that, if you're looking to save more money, you can automate your regular contributions to a savings account, your regular contributions to your favorite mutual funds, to your brokerage account, getting the money out of your bank account and into something that you consider to be an untouchable financial account is a great way to increase the amount that you save. And that way you get it away from your checking account before you're tempted to spend it. On the flip side, not only should you automate how much you save on a regular basis, but you should also automate your regular bill paying. That way, you're less likely to miss the payment of a bill, which can cause you to you know, realize you know, fines for being late on a bill payment, and it may also end up dinging up your credit score. Indeed, very good. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. His website, HumbleDollar.com, you'll find a lot more of what we talked about here. His book is called From Here to Financial Happiness. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements, former personal finance columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Uh, His website, HumbleDollar.com. His latest book called From Here to Financial Happiness. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to be talking to you, Jordan. I just want to talk a little bit about the current environment we have. Uh, The stock market's been falling pretty sharply here. People are worried about a recession next year. They're worried about trade wars. How can people handle this kind of fraught environment, both financially and emotionally? Well, first of all, we should realize that, you know, as much excitement as there's been in the media about this stock market decline, it really has not meant a whole lot. I mean, right now, you know, we have the market very slightly down for the year. I mean, it hasn't by any means been a terrible year for this the stock market. You know, people may end up, you know, being down one or two percent for 2019. It hasn't been a huge deal. And for anybody who's in the stock market, who's a long-term investor, and if you're in the stock market, you should be a long-term investor. This really doesn't matter. I mean, the people who are panicking at this point are three groups. There are people who have money in the stock market that they need to spend soon. There are people who invest in the stock market and realize that they just don't have the emotional stamina to stick with stocks. But the biggest group who are panicking right now are actually professional money managers. When you see 
the market dropping in the way it has in recent months, it's not because of individual investors. It's because professional money managers, well over 90% of the trading is done by professional money managers. And the reason they're panicking is because they have a much shorter time horizon than you and me. They're worried about their performance over the next 12 months because that's what they're paid based on. For you and me, we're investing for the long term. You know, even if you're a 65-year-old you know, who's entering retirement, you may be in the financial markets for another 20 or 30 years. What happens today or tomorrow is really immaterial. You should have a long time horizon. And what happened in 2018 is it's nothing. It's really just, you know, a minor so, so debt. People should resist the temptation to panic and think this is 2008 all over again and they should get out before their holdings fall sharply. Absolutely. And, and if, if you're still in the workforce and you're regularly saving, there is a huge silver lining here because if you're regularly contributing to your 401k plan, if you're sending money off to your favorite mutual fund every month, you're getting to buy at these lower prices. And that, as an investor, is what you want to be doing. You want to be buying at lower prices and selling at higher prices. Right now is a chance to add your portfolio at lower prices. For anybody who's regularly saving, there is a huge silver lining to this market decline. Indeed. Let's get back to things in the book. You talk about getting real about real estate. How can people make the decision to buy versus rent in an appropriate way? When you think about real estate, you shouldn't be getting into the the business of forecasting which way you think the property market is going. Nobody should be doing that because nobody can do that. What you should be thinking about is the same thing you think about when you invest in the stock market, which is time horizon. You know, if you have 10 years to invest, the stock market is a great place to be. If you have two years to invest, the stock market is a terrible place to be. Ditto for real estate. If you have at least five to seven years to where you know you're going to be in one spot, buying a home is a very sensible financial decision. If you're only going to stick around for the next couple of years, be smart. Just rent a place because you're not going to be in the, in the house long enough in order to make back the huge cost of first buying a house and then selling it. Plus, the market could go against you. Yeah. Uh, you have an area about kids. Uh, what should people decide financially when they're thinking of having kids? <laughs> what should they think about kids? They are enormously expensive. Uh, the data from the Department of Agriculture indicates that to raise a kid in a middle-class family through age 17 costs well over $200,000. And then even if you only send the kid to the local state university and you pay in-state tuition, it's probably going to cost you eighty dollars or $90,000 for the four years, according to data from the College Board. So... Having a kid is an enormously costly proposition. Now, before, Jordan, you accuse me of being some nasty, heartless, childless New Yorker, I should mention that I do have two kids and two stepkids, so I'm heavily invested in small people, but there is a significant cost involved. If you want to be able to enjoy raising your kids and not have it racked by financial worry, before you have the kids, you should really make an effort to get your finances in shape. So a lot of people underestimate the cost of kids is what it's going to be. Absolutely. In fact, you know, when you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear that people spend far more on raising their children than they manage to save for their own retirement. The people, I think, underestimate how much it costs to raise a kid. And at the same time, they don't think nearly enough about how much it costs 
to pay for a comfortable retirement. Yeah. On the other hand, a lot of people are not having kids today or having them much later because they do realize the financial costs of kids. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm anti-kid. Um, kids are enormously expensive, but I always think of them as being a long-term investment. You know, I now have adult children. Adult children are wonderful there. You know, I love to get together with them. But in the early years, particularly when you have a newborn, two, three years old, not only is it very expensive, but it's also not good for happiness. Kids <laughs> are like the stock market. They're a long-term investment. <laughs> very long-term. You have a section on asset allocation called It's All in the Mix. How do you do the right decision on how much should go into stocks, bonds, and cash? So one of the things that people should really do, particularly at this point in the market cycle, Jordan, is go back and look at how they behaved in 2008 and early 2009 when we had that horrendous 57% drop in the S&P 500. And you need to ask yourself, did I buy, did I sell, or did I simply sit tight and freeze? Because if you sold then when the market was dropping, that probably tells you that your personal risk tolerance, your stomach for market volatility is not great and you should probably have a more conservative portfolio. But even if you are a super brave investor and you were bravely buying in 2008 and early 2009, you also do need to think about time horizon. No matter how brave you are, if you have money that you're going to need to spend in the next couple of years, money that's, say, you know, you're going to use to send your high school kid to college, that money should be out of the stock market and invest in nothing more daring than, say, a short-term bond fund or a certificate of deposit. In about two minutes we have left, just kind of sum up the difference it'll make in people's lives if they take your 77-day course. What I hope people will come away with it's a better sense for what they want from their financial life. How can they best spend money in order to achieve greater happiness? And these are things that you do not know instinctually. You need to think really hard about how best to spend money in order to get greater happiness from it. And that's why I focus on what are the, your favorite parts of the week? You know, I get, encourage people to drop a wish list of expenditures they want to make in the years ahead so that they think really hard about which expenditures will bring them greater happiness. And I also ask them to think about their longer-term goals. Which are the longer-term goals they really care about? And what do those longer-term goals mean to them so they can make them sufficiently exciting that they're willing to make those short-term sacrifices? One of the things that I ask people to do to, right at the end of the book is to make a list of the accomplishments that they have achieved to date. If they were going to write their own obituary, what would they list as their greatest accomplishments? And then I ask them this question. All right, these are the things that you're most proud of. What are the accomplishments that you'd like to achieve in the years ahead? Because if you can list those and then you get your finances in great shape, you may be able to achieve those things and your life will be much richer because of it. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Jonathan Clements. His new book is called From Here to Financial Happiness, Enrich Your Life in Just 77 Days. You can also see more about Jonathan at his website, humbledollar.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Jonathan. Thanks for the great conversation, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. 
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.